This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for uh, being here tonight as we celebrate the launch of UC San Diego's Institute for Practical Ethics. I am Cristina Della Coletta, the Dean of the Division of Arts and Humanities. The work we honor here today is not only fascinating, it is also mandatory. From extracting insights from that data collection to addressing the difficult questions of genetic engineering, including de-extinction, um, scientists have transformative power with a speed and magnitude that the world has never seen before. And this makes us hopeful and optimistic for the future. But the difference between optimism and wishful thinking is analysis, diligence, and preparation. We can only ensure the impact of groundbreaking research, if, uh, if, whether they are positive, if we give it the forethought and the discourse it deserves. Through this institute, we focus our efforts to see that the scientific progress of both our university and the global communities will include a benefit all people, that our curiosity will be matched by empathy, and that good science remains responsible and socially conscious science. With new knowledge come new responsibilities, and we have a duty to study this responsibility as much as we study our world. And we also have a duty to our students and society as a public university. You see, San Diego will lead helping our students understand and get in front of all these new responsibilities, so they too will be a defining voice on the ethics and social impact of cutting edge science and technology. And the Division of Arts and Humanities is really a unique and perfect home for this institute. Our strong interdisciplinary culture has uh, laid the groundwork for ethicists, philosophers, artists, but also sociologists and scientists and policymakers to work together, welcoming collaboration with fellow academics off and on campus. For instance, one of the Institute's first initiatives is analyzing the social implication of active genetics, enabled by the university's uh, partnership and collaboration with the newly launched Tata Institute for Genomics and Society. We are also developing our relationship with Kyoto University in Japan, where undergraduate and graduate students, postdoc researchers, and professors from all disciplines, and both universities will meet together on each campus in an exchange to understand how the values of each culture are applied to and shared um, in scientific and technological innovation. Through these relationships and more, we're forming an institute uh, that bridges uh, the sciences and the humanities uh, for social good. We have the potential to inform and drive policy and action through independent academic inquiry. And we can form a trusted, clear voice in communicating science and truth to the public. 
I firmly believe that this will be the location that the world will turn to for all ethical questions, a place that will be relied upon by the public and in public debate. And all of this would not have been possible without the generosity and dedicated effort of our initial supporters, Joel and Anne Reed. Having community members like them, and you who care about and contribute to the direction and work of the university is what makes this possible. And what makes me also confident that this institute can achieve uh, is, uh, uh, is the leadership passion, vision, and expertise of our two co-directors, Professor Craig Callender and Professor John Evans. Thank you all for coming and helping us launch the Institute tonight. I am especially happy to welcome our students who are here tonight representing several majors from philosophy to engineering. <laughs> By being actively engaged, you are emphasizing the importance of working together across disciplines. I look forward to your positive impact and the impact this institute will have and continue to have in the coming years. And on this note, I would like to introduce uh, one of the co-directors of the institute, Professor John Evans. Hello, I'm John Evans. I'm, as was just said, the co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics, and I want to speak very briefly about the overall vision for the Institute, which is to engage in a truly holistic analysis of the ethics of science, technology, and medicine. And we've already built, I believe, one of the most strongly cross-disciplinary institutes at the university with great intellectual breadth. On the one hand, we enjoy the sponsorship of the Division of Arts and Humanities, reflecting this deep connection we have to the humanistic, philosophical, and ethical inquiry. We also have many scientists, many in this room, from multiple divisions on campus who are actively part of our mission. Also critical to the division is the support of the Division of Social Sciences. In addition to being the co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics, I'm also the Associate Dean of Social Sciences, and we have participants from seven of the 10 departments in that division. We're from an incredible range of departments and intellectual perspectives, from philosophy, public health, sociology, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, theater and dance, communication, biology, history, and many more. So the, the vision is to analyze a scientific or technological challenge from a natural science, social scientific, and humanistic perspective at the same time. So let me just briefly use an example of human gene editing, which many people have hear, heard about it. So should we, for example, use a technology like this to modify humans to make them resistant to disease, which some people think may be possible? From the scientists, you could say, is this actually possible? And if so, how would it actually be done? Uh, from social scientists, you could predict what society might actually do were that to be possible. Sociologists who know about things like uh, people giving advantages to their children could be able to say, in the same way you give advantage to your children by sending them to UCSD, would they be willing to do the same thing through genetics? And from ethicists, we can access long-established ways of thinking about the ethics of a problem such as this. For example, if we're going to use this for curing disease, what is a disease in the first place? 
So the position of the Institute for Practical Ethics is that we can only steer all this amazing technological and scientific brilliance on this campus and in the world towards productive ends if we consider all of these perspectives simultaneously. So with that, I turn uh, the floor to my partner in crime, uh, Craig Callender. Thanks, John. Uh, I'm Craig Callender, co-director of the Institute and professor of philosophy. For many years, I felt that UC San Diego can and should be a leader in developing socially responsible science. Uh, the need is clear. Big companies like Facebook and Google collect and use our personal data. Genetic engineering raises as many questions as it does promise. The list is long. Self-driving cars, uh, parents with three biological babies, climate manipulation, and so on. In each case, we must ask, what are the societal impacts and what should we do? In the face of these questions, I think it's becoming clear that a new model of socially responsible science is necessary. In this model, ethicists and social scientists are drafted right from the start to work alongside the scientists. And this is happening today, and it's happening at UC San Diego. So right now, for example, ethicists and social scientists are working hand-in-hand -hand with biologists on what is called the gene drive, a powerful way of, manip uh, a powerful way of uh, pushing a modification through a population. Together, they're training, and listening to, training each other, listening to each other, genuinely trying to figure out the best paths, path forward, all things considered. This is an important step forward, and the Institute for Practical Ethics will do the same for many other scientific innovations. Our goal is that this specific UC San Diego model, featuring partnership across disciplines, active student engagement and learning, and the audacity to take ideas and concepts apart for the improvement of society, that this becomes a paradigm for others to follow. With the establishment of the Institute, UC San Diego is living up to the ideals and examples set by its founders. Roger Revell discovered climate change, went to DC, came back here as a professor of science policy dedicated to figuring out a way to how to deal with it. Herb York, our first chancellor, worked on the Manhattan Project, which developed the first atomic bombs possibly the most ethically charged ex experiment in science ever, and then spent the bulk of his life devoted to nuclear deterrence. Our institute wouldn't exist if many people here didn't share that vision. And so I want to take a pause for a second and thank uh, many people. So I'd like to thank, in particular, uh, Dean Christina Della Coletta, whose insight, leadership, and enthusiasm for the idea has been nothing short of amazing. I'd like to also thank uh, Chancellor Pradeep Kosla. Uh, Suresh Subramani, the global director of the new Tata Institute for Genetics and Society. Uh, Vice Chancellor for Research, Sandy Brown. Larry Goldstein, the scientific director of the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine. And many, many others, too numerous to mention, many of whom are here. We also join the dean in thanking Joel and Ann Reed. We wouldn't be where we are today, nor where we will be tomorrow, if it weren't for their generosity and support. Okay. Um, I'm delighted to now introduce Professor Beth Shapiro. Professor Shapiro is a MacArthur Genius Award winner, winning molecular biologist from UC Santa Cruz. She uses genetic techniques to understand evolutionary history. This work entails using some of the most sophisticated and groundbreaking methods available in genetic engineering, but also involves flying to Siberia to look for frozen woolly mammoth carcasses. Um, so I think we could just stop and 
you know, all agreed that she has the coolest job you could possibly imagine. The combination of available DNA fragments and new techniques raises the possibility of bringing back these great lost beasts of the past, as well as others. In her award-winning book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, she thoughtfully explores the possibility of doing so and whether or not we should if we can. With this, Professor Shapiro is the perfect example of the mission of the Institute for Practical Ethics, and we are extremely grateful that she was able to join us on this special day. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, and I am genuinely honored to be here to help kick off this amazing institute, which I hope to be able to be involved with more as it evolves and have come and have more interesting discussions about the ethics of these technologies that are developing now that I'm very excited about. Um, I do wear a lot of hats. Um, in, I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. I'm actually about to take 13 undergraduates on a four-week camping trip in the Arctic, so I'm also insane. Um, <laughs> And uh, another thing that I do is I, I'm a National Geographic Explorer, and in, in doing that, I make these little bits and piece videos of things that we do in the Arctic, and I, I, I often like to start talks by showing a little bit of one of those so that you know that you have absolutely no reason to take me seriously for the rest of the time I'm up here, all right? So I'm going to start with this little piece that um, we filmed a few years ago when we were up in Dawson City, which is in Canada's Yukon, um, where there's a lot of active gold mining, and and because they're gold mining on the surface with uh, these high-pressure water hoses, this exposes thousands of bones. And that's just a little bit of context for where we are here. This is the placer mining. What we've just found, you can see, is one, two, three, four pieces of mammoth bone here. That's mammoth vertebra. vertebra. So you can see how big this is. And the neat thing about this is that these are the small pieces, which means that the stuff is washed downstream. See, these pieces are actually still frozen in the permafrost. We can't get them out at all, which means they're going to be really well preserved. Just heard that big splash of water back there. That means another hole's broken through. Here comes the water. We better get out of here. <laughs> all right, so in my defense, that water is really gross. Um, <laughs> So the, that, that muck, that frozen muck up there, is actually hundreds of thousands of years of frozen and decaying bits of plants and animals that used to live there. And so it smells awful. And if it washes over you, then you smell awful for a very long time. And there are not many opportunities for having a shower up there, okay? So you don't want to be in the way when this happens. Um, my, my research actually is mostly in this part of the world called Beringia. Beringia actually from over here in like kind of the Mackenzie Delta area over here in the Yukon all the way across Alaska into Siberia over to the Lena River Delta. And you can see that the color is light blue there. That's because the ocean is a lot more shallow there. So when during ice ages, when much of the water on the planet is taken up into making these big glaciers that sat on top of the continents, that whole area was exposed. And it was an important conduit for movement between Asia and North America. Things like Horses and camels move from North America into Asia, and things like bison and people move from Asia into North America. So this part of the world, while today it looks like this, pretty barren, especially above the tree line, during the last ice age it looked more like this, with 
lots of different exotic Arctic Ice Age megafauna, mammoths and mastodons and, and woolly rhinos in Asia that never made it over to North America, saber-toothed cats, two different genera of horses, lots of different wonderful creatures. So we fly out there in fantastic machinery like this beautiful helicopter that you'll notice is actually missing some windows all right, you see that right there? Um, that, that's actually really good because in this particular expedition, after we had uh, loaded all of our gear inside this helicopter and we're sitting on top of these gas tanks, which make up most of the inside of that helicopter, and took off finally, the uh, French and Russian expedition team decided to celebrate that we'd finally taken off by smoking. So, you know, you could breathe better with the, the window open. And we, we stay in five-star accommodation like this. That's, I actually took that picture by walking, backing up away from my tent and slightly unfocusing the lens so you could see the depth of field of mosquitoes that you deal with in the Arctic. And we wander around looking for bones. This is, again, um, this is the, the placer mining looking for gold in the Yukon in Canada. And they're spraying that frozen sediment down here. And there's my team kind of wandering around picking up the bones that are exposed as the miners are trying to get to those gold-bearing gravels beneath. And so in a typical day of collecting out there, we'll get something like 30 or 40 bags like this. This is a whole bunch of caribou, a bit of mammoth remains, a lot of horse and bison that we take back to the lab. Well, we take a chunk out of these bones and take that back to the lab. And then we dress up in these funny outfits as if we're working with highly dangerous things. Actually, the bones aren't dangerous, but we are dangerous. Our DNA is in fantastic condition. So if we were to breathe on or touch these remains, then we would have a very difficult time getting the DNA from the bones that we need to do our work. So what motivates my research is really I'm trying to understand, using the DNA that we get from these bones, um, how species change in response to large-scale changes in climate. The goal of my research is to learn from the past to be able to make more informed decisions about how to use the limited resources that we have to protect species that are in danger today because of, of current and projected climate change. But we do this by focusing on the past and specifically ask how did species and ecosystem respond to past periods of rapid environmental change? We work mostly over the last 100,000 years, and this is a reconstruction of average global temperatures. Here's the present zero, just at 1950 or so here. And you can see that the climate actually fluctuated quite a lot over the last 100,000 years. And we can get DNA from animals and plants that lived across this entire interval and ask, for example, what happened during this period right here of very rapid global warming? In fact, in the Arctic, we have some measures that show that this last movement, this transition out of the last ice age and into the present warm period happened over the course of maybe four or five decades. This is an eight degree Celsius increase in global temperatures. And this gives us a lot of power to try to infer how these ecosystems changed in the past. And we've gotten a lot of, of exciting results out of this over the last couple of decades. We've watched bison and horses and mammoth populations grow and then decline in response to things like humans first appearing and this rapid climate change associated with the onset of the ice age and then again the rapid warming into the Holocene. We've seen brown bear populations expanding in response to the expanding herbivore populations and we're beginning to understand why things like cave lions went extinct, 
when caribou did not. A big hint is that caribou mostly stayed out of the way of people. And we published these papers and we're very excited about these results and how we want to communicate them to people about what we can learn from the past to inform the decisions we're making today. But when I get on the phone with people from the media, often the real question that they have for me is, so what have you learned that's going to be, make it easier for us to bring mammoths back to life? Right. And if we're honest, that's also why I'm here today, not to talk about my research again, but to talk about how close we are to bringing mammoths back to life, which is fair, right? Because I did write a book called How to Bring Mammoths Back to Life. So it's pretty much expected that I should be here giving you an update on de-extinction. And that I'm going to do. And you're lucky because just today, just this morning, as I was leaving Santa Cruz, de-extinction was still not possible, right? <laughs> and just to clarify the extent by, of the impossibility of de-extinction, it is not possible to bring back mammoths or passenger pigeons or Neanderthals or Hitler or dodos or any horses or saber-toothed cats or dinosaurs or the, the Tasmanian tiger or great ox or the gastric brooding frog or Max, who was... Um, my key sound until I was about five, and apparently he would let me lay on his stomach and stick my fingers up his nose. All of these things are gone. They're dead. We cannot bring them back to life. We cannot bring something that is extinct back to life. <laughs> so I'm supposed to talk about can we, should we, will we bring extinct species back to life. So that's a pretty good start of can we. Can we? No. But actually, it's more complicated than that, because the answer isn't really just no. And so I think um, the way that I decided that I would do this is, is it, it, because it's complicated, it's often just a little bit tricky around the edges. And, and I'm going to start by talking about the technology. And hopefully, by the time we get through the technology, you'll understand what I mean by it's no, but it's also not no, OK? Because I, I, get, I get that that's confusing. So. How would we, or does one, plan to bring extinct species back to life? The first thing we think about is cloning, obviously. We hear a lot about cloning. But cloning is actually a very specific scientific technology known as somatic cell nuclear transfer. So we basically have two different types of cells. Somatic cells, which are all of the cells in our body, like heart cells and brain cells and hair cells and liver cells, etc., and germ cells, and those are sperm and eggs. Normally what happens in making an animal is that a sperm and an egg come together. They fertilize this the sperm fertilizes the egg, and then it starts developing into an embryo. The point of somatic cell nuclear transfer is to skip that part. Instead, you have a somatic cell, like a brain cell. And what you want to do is you want to trick that brain cell into forgetting all of the instructions necessary to be a brain cell, because different types of cells have different instructions, different genes turned on and off to different extents because they have to do different things. So you want to trick that cell into forgetting those instructions and resetting, becoming the type of cell that can then start to divide and differentiate and become every type of cell that's required to make an organism. So who's the most famous clone? Dolly. Dolly, right. So how we make Dolly, how, what happened here was 
the, the, the donor of the somatic cells, the clone that Dolly became, was a particular breed of sheep. And they took some cells, they were mammary cells in this case, and put them in a dish and starved them of nutrients. So you've got cells that are starved of nutrients. At the same time, they took a different sheep. It doesn't have to be a different breed. In this case, they used a different breed so they could see at the end what the results were. But they took a different breed of sheep, and they took egg cells that were ready to be fertilized but were not yet fertilized and sucked out that nucleus. This is the part that would be fertilized by sperm. Then they had this empty, ready-to-go egg cell and these other cells here that are starved of nutrients, stick them next to each other, zap them with a bit of electricity, the cell wall opens up, and this nucleus from this starved cell dumps into that egg cell. And then the proteins that are in that egg cell, they zap it again, they cause this nuclear stuff, this nucleus, which is the kind of equivalent of a fertilized little egg here, to start to divide and differentiate and become all the different types of cells that end up being an entire organism. So it develops into an embryo, you implant it into a surrogate host, and then you have Dolly, who is born. And Dolly is an identical genetic clone to the donor of the somatic cells, not the donor of the egg cells, and not the surrogate mom. So we could translate this quite straightforwardly to what we would do with a mammoth, right? We go out into the field and we find one of these incredibly well-preserved mammoth remains. We find a cell, we stick it into a dish, we starve it of nutrients so that it gets all stressed out. We get an egg cell from an elephant and we can then stick that nucleus in there, it does its little magic thing where it resets everything, it starts to divide. We implant it into an elephant, a little baby elephant is born, mammoth thing, and then we re-release re it into the environment. Right? <laughs> So here's the first problem, right? Yeah, so we do have some incredibly well-preserved remains that we find when we go working up in the field. And there were a few years ago, you might have seen the headlines about this particular thing that was found up in the New Siberian Islands. This was a, a mammoth, an entire carcass that this team found, and it supposedly had blood associated with it. And everybody went nuts and thought, oh my goodness, we're going to have cells, we're going to be able to clone mammoths. Well, it wasn't blood. It was something that's officially known in, in science land as corpse juice, <laughs> right? Didn't have any living cells in it. Um, and none of these things, despite how well-preserved they are, actually have any living cells. The problem is that as soon as an organism dies, there are enzymes in our own bodies. There are enzymes released by the bacteria that live in our guts. There's radiation from the sun. There's freeze-thaw action. There are fungi that colonize and bacteria that colonize those specimens. And these things immediately start to break down those cells and to chop up the DNA into smaller and smaller fragments. And while we're alive, DNA you can think of as really nice, long, long strands of streamers. When we're working with ancient DNA, this type of DNA that we can get from these remains, it's more like confetti, right? But not nice-looking confetti like this. More like the confetti that you would find like in the gutter the day after a parade, you know, when it was raining. And so it wasn't in San Diego. It was somewhere else, right? I was here two weeks ago and it rained. I was super disappointed in San Diego. Honestly, you come to San Diego, you don't want rain. Beautiful today. Thank you for this, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, this is what we end up with, these, these tiny little broken bits of DNA. And where we have tiny little broken bits of DNA, we especially are never going to find intact chromosomes or intact nuclei or intact cells. And where we don't have any intact cells, we cannot make a clone. This scientific process simply doesn't happen. We will never clone a mammoth. Sorry. Thank you for coming. <laughs> just kidding. Obviously, I'm just kidding. All right, so we know, though, that there are all these new technologies and new approaches, and these are some of the things that we're most scared about here. And so the way that people are thinking about resurrecting extinct species now is to use these genome editing technologies, CRISPR-Cas-based technologies. And we can go out into the field and we can collect these incredibly well-preserved bones. And over the last five to ten years, people have used these tiny little chopped-up bits of DNA to assemble high-quality mammoth genome sequences. In fact, there are five published high-quality mammoth genome sequences, and there are several published high-quality elephant sequences as well. And so what we can do is we can take those sequences that we have for mammoths and that we have for elephants, and we can line them up next to each other in a computer and scan along them looking for where they're different from each other. And when we find important places where they're different from each other, we can then use this genome editing technology to swap out the elephant version of those genes in elephant cells for the mammoth version of those genes in elephant cells. So this is kind of how it would work. Here we have our, our CRISPR-Cas9 molecule. We have this red thing, which is our elephant genome, which is in an elephant cell growing in a dish in a lab. We've identified the specific part of the elephant genome that we want to change to look more like a mammoth. So we design our CRISPR-Cas9 molecule so it can go in there and make that change. We stick in there with, the, with this CRISPR-Cas9 molecule the little bit of DNA that we've synthesized in the lab that looks like the mammoth. This is the bit that we want to paste in the place of the elephant that we're gonna cut out. So the CRISPR-Cas9 molecule gets injected into that cell and it swims around the nucleus and finds exactly where it is that that change needs to be made, and then it cuts the DNA, makes a hole in the DNA. Now, DNA doesn't like to be broken like this in life. This causes cancer, so this is bad. And evolution has come up with a couple of different ways to fix this. So what we're going to do is harness one of these ways, one of these pathways, and we're going to get this DNA sequence to repair itself inside the cell by sticking this mammoth bit of the sequence in its place. And when that happens, we end up with an elephant with a DNA strand that has just a little bit of mammoth in it, making an elephant that is just a little bit mammoth-like. <laughs> Seems pretty straightforward. So what do we change? We know that the, the Asian elephant is the closest living relative of mammoths. And Asian elephants and mammoths are, have diverged over about the last five to six, five to seven million years. And there are about one and a half million differences in the, geome, in the genome sequences between Asian elephants and mammoths. About 1%, about the same amount of difference as there is between us and chimpanzees. So that narrows down a bit what we want to change. We can't 
quite make a million and a half changes, so we have to make some informed decisions. And we can look and we can ask what might be important that differentiates an elephant from a mammoth. One good idea is a few years ago, Kevin Campbell's group in Manitoba discovered, this is a phylogenetic tree showing the difference between an African elephant, a woolly mammoth, and an Asian elephant at a, a gene that is associated with making red blood cells. And here you can see there are three specific differences between a woolly mammoth and an Asian elephant. And when these particular um, red blood cell genes were put into mice, these red blood cells were better able to carry oxygen around the body when it was cold. So this seems like clearly a fantastic idea, a first choice of what you might change if you want to take a tropically adapted Asian elephant and turn it into something that's capable of living in a cold place. So there's one. What else? Well, there is a team of people at Harvard Broad Institute, George Church's group, that's actually doing this. They've identified a suite of Canada genes in the mammoth and Asian elephant that they would like to change. And so far, they've made 50 different changes at something like, I think, 30 different genes in, uh, in an, an Asian elephant genome. So they have ended up creating something that is a little bit mammoth-like. <laughs> It's actually better than this, because remember, they started off as 99% identical to each other. So now it's 99.00, there are probably more zeros in there, actually, percent identical to each other. So they're on their way. Of course, this is cells in a dish in a lab, which is very different from having an actual mammoth. But we are getting part of the way there. We can go into the field and collect <coughs> bones that are very well preserved. We can use the sequencing technologies that are available today to sequence and assemble mammoth genomes. We then can use this genome editing technologies to edit the genomes of elephant cells that are in a dish and in a lab. We've got that. And then that gives us living cells. And with living cells, we can do somatic cell nuclear transfer. So we get back to where we can clone, kind of, but we're cloning something different. We're cloning something that's mammoth-like, but in an elephant. And then what? Well, then we have to find a surrogate, and we have to make sure that the surrogate takes this developing embryo to term, and we have to find a place for that thing to live. And I like to call this part of the extinction phase two. Phase two gets a lot less attention in the media than phase one, perhaps because it's more difficult. It's, it's, it's more difficult to imagine, and it's more difficult to imagine that it's spectacular, whereas editing cells using molecular machines is, is very exciting. And yet, there are some incredibly difficult technical challenges that will need to be surmounted during phase two. For example, for many species that have been extinct for a long time, there are no close living relatives. And yet, the first step here is to find an adequate surrogate to actually carry this potentially modified thing to term. In some cases, there might actually be physical constraints, like size differences between species that can affect whether this is going to succeed or not. This is actually not a problem for uh, Asian elephants and mammoths. I actually thought it was. When I started writing the book, I had this 
part of the chapter where I'd written all about how Asian elephants couldn't possibly carry this much larger mammoth determined it would be really disastrous and dangerous for the mom. And I called up Adrian Lister, who's a, a mammoth biologist at uh, the Natural History Museum in London, and I excitedly asked him what, how much horror there would be. And he was like, oh, no, no, they were, they were about the same size. Yeah, that would be just fine. And I was deeply disappointed until I found a better example, right? So this right here on the bottom is Stellar's sea cow. This is a, this massive, massive dugong-like animal that used to live off the California coast all the way up to the Commander Islands. The closest living relative of this guy is a dugong. I think that's the dugong. I can't really see in the text here. Um, is a dugong. And if the size ratio between just born dugong and mom dugong holds for the stellar sea cow, then the newborn stellar sea cow would be slightly larger than his mom, <laughs> which probably wouldn't work very well, right? <laughs> There are other challenges as well. We are more than the sequence of the A's, C's, G's, and T's that make up our DNA. In fact, we are a product of a combination of genetic and environmental influences. And those environmental influences, which turn genes on and off, actually begin prior to birth. So if we have a developing embryo that is 0.00001% more like a mammoth, how do we know that the developmental environment in the maternal host won't override any of the genetic changes that we've made carefully and painstakingly using our molecular machines? How do we know how the mom's diet and the mom's intestinal biota and the mom's stresses and the mom having to live in a captive breeding environment are all going to to affect the development of this animal. We also don't know how to train these animals to survive in a captive breeding environment. Elephants do this thing where they actually, the, the mom will feed the newborn baby a little bit of her own poop in order to establish the community of microbes that live in their guts to help them digest the food that they eat. This is going to be a very different community of microbes than a mammoth would have received if they were living on the steppe tundra of Siberia. And we really don't know what the influence of that might be. The animal will have to learn how to be an an, a mammoth living in a social community of elephants. And again, in this odd captive breeding environment, which isn't necessarily good for elephants. And this really, with mammoth cloning, is where I personally draw the line. Um, we know that elephants don't fare particularly well in captive breeding environments. And right now, there isn't a way that we could do this without using elephants in a captive breeding environment. When George Church gets asked this particular question, he just says, oh, we'll make, we'll make external placentas. We won't have to use elephants at all. Well, that would be great, yeah, but I don't think we're close to that either, elephant-sized placenta. It'd be cool for science and for, for learning about, for us even, it would be great to have these external uh, placentas, but uh, somebody laughed. That was somebody with kids. I have two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, never mind. Um, <laughs> Seriously, though, and, and for all of the different species that one might consider for de-extinction, there, there are going to be different considerations, different technical hurdles, different ethical challenges, and even different ecological challenges that will be faced. This 
map here is the part of the world that used to be inhabited by the passenger pigeon, which, another, which is another species that is commonly talked about as a potential uh, candidate for de-extinction. These passenger pigeons were a species that flocked in the billions. They went in a single flock that was that big from masting tree stand to masting tree stand, consuming and destroying everything in its path. It's difficult to imagine where in this part of North America you would put a flock of three billion passenger pigeons today. So these are all different things to consider when we start thinking about de-extinction. Technically, is it possible? Technically, some things are possible. And for each species, there are different things that aren't possible. The ethical challenges abound, though, and the ecological considerations are part of those ethical challenges. And it's institutes like this here that allow us to sit back and start thinking about these challenges. Now, I said before that this is something that is difficult. This is something that's hard. And this is something that doesn't really have a yes or no answer. And I hope that now that we've seen some of these technical challenges, you can understand a little bit better what I was saying. If we were to do this, if we were to take an elephant and change parts of its genome, little tiny bits of its genome, make it hairier, make it have thicker layers of subcutaneous fat, make it able to live in the habitat where a mammoth once lived, will we end up with something that's a mammoth? Or will it still be an elephant that has a little bit of mammoth DNA? Or, perhaps even more difficult, will it be something else? Will it be a different species, a, a new species, a, a new thing? We like to categorize things. We like to know when something is a species or not because it tells us how to deal with it. And if, if it is going to be something new, who is it that gets to make that decision about what we're going to call it or how we're going to treat it or even what it's going to be? Who gets to decide which species are going to be brought back from the dead? These are all very difficult, challenging, and pertinent, and I dare say, as this technology is developing, important questions. Will this be something that's led by scientists, biologists, teams of people, sociologists, humanists, conservation biologists? Or will it be something that's led by some rich billionaire who decides he wants to bring a mammoth back to life? Or by a VC firm who decides that they have the money to invest in this because it's certainly not getting funded by public funding agencies, at least not at this point. And if a billionaire or a VC firm wants to get involved with bringing this back to life, then an important question might be, can it be patented? Is it a natural product? Is this something that someone can decide what to do with? Will it be a genetically modified organism? We have difficulty with this. Actually, this is one of the questions that's easiest to answer because things are not actually given the label genetically modified organism and therefore regulated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, unless they would be brought back specifically to be a food or a drug. So in the case where we're bringing something back because we want to see it reestablished in a habitat or we want to put it in a zoo, it's neither a food nor a drug, so it would be regulated under environmental laws. In that case, would we be able to see it protected by the Endangered Species Act? Well, here we have yet another series of questions. First, is it a species? We haven't really answered that. And second, is it endangered? So we don't, we don't know anything about how to deal with these products of, of the, the types of science that we're just thinking, coming to terms with how to do. We also don't really know what we're still missing. 
Epigenetics is how genes are turned on and off. This is regulated by the developmental environment during prenatal development, by the foods we eat, by the, the microbes that live in our guts. What are, what are we missing when we're trying to reconstruct what's something that's extinct, that's potentially been extinct for tens of thousands of years and lived in a habitat that is extinct? What are we missing from part of that? And how do we know that if we change part of the DNA, it's not going to have completely different effects than the phenotype that we're expecting? We're talking about species where we can't do these types of experiments that we like to do in the lab. We can't say, oh, here, what I'll do is I'll tweak this gene and I'll see how the expression of these genes change or I'll make a different phenotype. It takes 14 years for an elephant to reach maturity. This is not a fast experiment to determine whether or not a single tweak of a gene is going to work. And not just thinking about the animal itself or the DNA that we're changing, what effect would releasing a species that's been extinct for thousands of years have on the ecosystem into which we put it? These are all important questions that institutes like this are going to be tasked with convening teams of people to discuss. And I think this is vitally important as we think about this technology. And plus, why are we always talking about mammoths? Really? I'm really tired of talking about mammoths. Shouldn't we be focusing on things that are still alive? instead of on trying to bring things back that aren't here anymore? And finally, to this, I have an actual answer. Yes, we should be. But isn't that kind of what we're doing? We're not talking anymore about bringing something back that's 100% identical to a mammoth. We're talking about taking an elephant and changing it so that that elephant has the capacity to live in a cold place. And maybe there are situations where this sort of technology, which I think uh, is better termed, there's a term that people like to use for this, as genetic rescue, which I, like, I consider uh, to be like the extinction but possible. Right. Um, with genetic rescue, we're trying to use these exact same technologies. But instead of focusing on the science fiction of bringing something back that's gone, we're talking about still kind of science fiction, but more possible strategies of using these same approaches, genome editing, DNA sequencing, even ancient DNA and sequencing extinct genomes to save species that are still alive. One project that's been ongoing that uses genetic rescue or hopes to use genetic rescue is that to save the black-footed ferret. This is a species that was thought to be extinct in the middle of the, of the 1980s until a population was discovered, a single population. It was immediately put on the Endangered Species Act and, and a captive breeding program was begun and it's incredibly successful. You can make lots of black-footed ferrets. But as soon as black-footed ferrets get released into their habitat, they get sick, they get plague and they die. There are two ways that genetic rescue can be used to help and save the black-footed ferret. First, one of the major problems with the black-footed ferret population is that it completely lacks genetic diversity. The only remaining population had been through a very, very strong population bottleneck, lots of inbreeding and purging of diversity in the genome, including at parts of the genome that provide resistance to disease. But there are preserved black-footed ferrets. For example, there are some here in the frozen zoo at the San Diego Zoo that Ollie Ryder, who's sitting in the audience, runs. And these black-footed ferrets contain diversity from the past. 
We could use this technology potentially to take that diversity from the past and engineer it into these living black-footed ferrets, potentially increasing their capacity to fight off this disease. Another way that we could use this technology for the black-footed ferret is that domestic ferrets have a natural resistance to plague. If we could identify the parts of the genome that cause this natural resistance to plague, we could then engineer that into the black-footed ferret population, potentially giving it its own genetic resistance moved between species to the disease that's killing it. This is one example, and there are many examples that I can think of where in today's society, in the world that we see today, where there are many species that are suffering, we could use this sorts of technology. Just a few examples, we know that coral bleaching is a problem. Steve Palumbi at Stanford's doing some fantastic work to identify alleles for heat resistance, heat tolerance among these corals. If we could find what they are and move them between coral species, perhaps we could save more coral species from extinction. Black abalone are suffering from wasting disease. If we could identify genetic resistance to this withering syndrome, maybe we could move that into afflicted populations. And the images on the right just show this incredible devastation that happens because of spruce bark beetles across the western part of North America. These are examples where if we could do the hard work, and it is hard work, we don't know what the genetic resistance to these particular diseases are, and it will take money and time and effort and, and engineering to figure the solutions out. But I think we should stop thinking about engineering and bringing back species and start thinking about engineering traits. We can't bring something back that's gone because it's gone. Not a whole species, not 100% identical. But we do have the technology, the developing technology, and we will have better technology to be able to resurrect some of these extinct traits. So if we ask the question at the end, should we do this? I think that the answer there is yes. As I said, there are many different technical hurdles that we still need to find solutions to. There are ethical challenges, and these ethical challenges vary by what species we're talking about, what situation we're talking about. And of course, there are ecological challenges. But institutes like this one will help us to identify the risks, to be able to find solutions to the problems that, that that, that we identify, and to bring together the right group of people to actually have these discussions before any of this is possible. And this is vitally important to be able, being able to move forward with these sorts of technologies. I'm not saying that it's not going to be risky. There is a tremendous amount of risk associated with adopting any sort of new technology. But what we're doing today, hesitating and wringing our hands and worrying, is also risky. Because while we are not doing anything, species are disappearing. I think it's worth the risk. Thank you. So, thank you very much. We have a few minutes uh, for questions. Uh, Craig's going to run around and give the microphone to... Yeah, so let's uh, so start over there. I'm a little confused. Didn't Dr. Uh, Henry Wu and John Hammond fix all this, all the microbiome issues, the plant life, everything else, back 
20 years ago? Right, yeah, and, and often, uh, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right, yeah. And, and so when we, I, I, don't, I used to try to say, you know, nobody knows what de-extinction is because it's, it's a terrible word. It's really hard to say. You can't imagine how you might conjugate it. That's really what I hate the most about the word de-extinction. But at least we all understand what it is because we were there when it happened the first time, right? And, and with Jurassic Park is what he's talking about, right? Yeah. Um, um, and and that, went, that went remarkably well. I think we remember. Yeah. No, no problems at all. Right. <laughs> so in terms of uh, justification, ethics of gene modification and manipulation of DNA, it seems to me rescue is a splendid term because in biological sciences what we know is that if we say we're going to fix a disease or stop a disease, there's general ethical applause. If we say we're going to change something that doesn't necessarily need to be changed, then there's a lot of uh, fright. So I would say that your, your approach to rescuing is a splendid approach, and the, uh, the forest in Wyoming is a great example. So I think that solves a lot of ethical problems. <laughs> Thanks. You know, there, there is some motivation for this, too. And I think we fear, we, we often think and fear that we are manipulating things and we're pushing things beyond what we should be doing. But I think what we need to remember is that we, as a species, have been manipulating the genomes and the evolutionary trajectories of the species that we encounter for as long as we have existed as a species. Uh, the first record of manipulating gray wolves and turning them into what eventually becomes Great Danes and Chihuahuas is from 30,000 years ago in the archaeological record in Europe. To say that we are suddenly doing something that is very dangerous is, is incorrect. Um, in the past, we did this by trial and error. We would take things and we would mix them and maybe they would come up with something good and maybe they wouldn't. It's similar to what we're doing now, but we have power and technology to see and predict much better now what some of these changes and some of these manipulations are going to be. And while I'm not saying that it's not risky and it's not something that we have to consider the ethical implications of, I think it's wrong to have the sudden, uh, um, error, the sudden pushback to it being, well, we have, we've crossed the line when we start manipulating things. We've been doing this for a long time. So if I can follow up on that last question. The, the black-footed ferret was really cute, and we all went, oh, it's, we, we would like to rescue that. But if we were prairie dogs, we wouldn't say that because that's who, that's who they eat. So can you say a little more about the normative? You know, what's the should here? How, how do we decide this? It's a, you know the, there's an there's an interesting point there about baselines right um, when we think about conservation in general, what we often think about is restoring a system to some baseline. And in this case, you're saying that, you know, black-footed ferrets might have been there, and they might have been eating prairie dogs for a really long time, but they're not anymore. So prairie dog populations are doing great, and they're going to be super mad if we bring this predator back, the predator that used to be there and used to eat them, right? So how does one decide what the right baseline is? And I think this is a really important question and something that an institute like this can debate. When we think about conservation in North America, we often consider pre-European colonization to be the baseline. This is what we want to return things to. It was perfect before Europeans got here, right? 
But, you know, it was very different 500 years ago, but it was even more different 2,000 years ago. And 10,000 years ago, we just come out of an ice age, and then all the megafauna went extinct, and the landscape was totally transformed. And how do we choose what the appropriate baseline is? And this is a difficult question. And I think a lot of what's going to happen is we're going to choose baselines that we are most happy and comfortable with. And by we, I mean the people who are making the decisions, which is why institutes like this one are so important to have. Thank you. Uh, going back to your recent point about humanity turning wolves into dogs and domesticating cattle and things like that, but this is a new age. I mean, before you could only do that with things that you could breed together as opposed to taking a gene from a jellyfish and sticking it into a, you know, corn or something like that. I mean, that's, that's unprecedented. That's right, yeah. We now have powers to be able to change things in, in more dramatic ways. And we are going to have to learn to use those powers wisely. And again, I mean, I hate to just be a broken record here, but isn't that why we're going to have this institute so we can have these conversations? You're absolutely right. The, the, the scale of what we can do is different now. And where do we draw the line? I don't know. I would like to thank our very interesting speaker tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.